This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 14th, 2005. Helios Airway Flight 522, a Boeing 737 with 121 people on board, has taken off from Larnaca, Cyprus, bound for Athens, Greece. Shortly after takeoff, the pilots hear what they believe is a takeoff configuration warning alarm. The pilots then notice that their cooling equipment appears to not be functioning properly and a master caution alarm sounds. The crew contacts maintenance on the ground and begins troubleshooting the problem. The captain gets up to reset some circuit breakers located behind him and that is the last anyone hears from the plane. The plane continues to fly for three hours and circles over Athens. Fighter pilots intercept the plane and see oxygen masks deployed in the cabin, but no movement at all. In the cockpit, they see the first officer slumped in his seat and what appears to be an unknown person sitting in the captain's seat. The plane eventually banks to the left, descends and impacts the ground, leaving no survivors. What happened to Helios Airway Flight 522? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. This is crazy. There's like mystery people. What's going on? It's a mystery. No one's moving. There's some unknown person in the cockpit. Plane's flying for three hours. It's They're not talking to anybody. It's really weird. It's very weird. I read that the, I believe there was two F-16s who intercept this plane. One of them, like I said, you know, goes up and tries to fly alongside the cockpit to look in and see what they can see. And the other F-16 is in position behind the 737 to shoot it down if they need to, just because oh they don't know what's going on. It's uh, That's absolutely cra- crazy. It, uh. Before we get into all that mystery and, and figure out what happened here, I do want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod. We post images and uh, supplemental material that maybe we can't always convey adequately via audio. That way you can get you you can you can please your eyes as well as your ears. Yeah, and thanks to everyone who um, has been like posting about the show or you know living reviews on Facebook or Apple Podcasts or any of those other things. That's awesome, and we really appreciate it. And our uh, our relatively new YouTube channel. Yeah, you can go check it out there if you consume podcasts on YouTube. Just trying to get it out there as many platforms as possible. So, like I said, Helios Airways Flight 522 was a passenger flight from Larnaca, Cyprus, and it was actually bound for Prague in the Czech Republic, but it was going to have a stopover uh, in Athens, Greece. A couple of years ago, I guess a while ago now, August 14th, 2005, the captain was Hans Jürgen Merton, who was 59 years old, had 16,900 hours of flight time, and first officer, Pampos Charalambos. I hope I said that right. <laughs> it's a Greek name. It's a cool name. 51 years old, had 7,549 hours of flight time. I think that might be the thing I get most nervous about when we do these episodes is the pronunciation the names. of names. Yeah, some, you know, if they're English names, easy enough. Spanish names, I can handle that. And then uh, it starts falling off after there. Yeah. Well, not that I would know if you did poorly, but I think you've done a great job so far. Thank, thank you. <laughs> so this aircraft, like I said, was a Boeing 737 with 17,900 flight hours and 16,085 cycles. There were 115 passengers and four flight attendants on board. So flight 522 departed from Larnaca Airport at 6.07 a.m. universal time, and they were cleared to climb to their flight level 340, which, of course, is 34,000 feet. At 6.12 a.m. UTC, which is five minutes after they departed, they were at an altitude of 12,040 feet, and the cabin altitude warning horn sounded. A couple minutes later, the captain contacted the operations center via radio, and the captain reported, takeoff configuration warning on, and cooling equipment normal and alternate offline. And if you remember, we've talked about the takeoff configuration warning before. Normally, this only sounds when a plane is taking off if it's not 
properly configured for the takeoff. Like if flaps aren't extended or it's not in the correct configuration to easily get off the ground. Mm -hmm. This is nothing too alarming yet, right? It's just... Well, the takeoff configuration warning alarm doesn't make sense that it would sound in the air. It should only sound when you're on the ground about to take off. Yeah, it makes sense. (laughs) Right. Like once you're in the air, it doesn't matter. That alert shouldn't come on. So the captain was put into contact with a, you know, an engineer on the ground, like we've talked about before, and you know, they call mm-hmm. tech support. The captain said that the ventilation cooling fan lights were off. The ground engineer replied that this was normal, then asked the captain to confirm the problem because it did not make sense as the lights are normally off when the system is serviceable. The captain replied that they were not switched off. The message from the captain wasn't making sense to the ground engineer, so he asked to confirm that the pressurization panel was selected to auto. The ground engineer asked this because the panel was in close proximity to the other panel and he had used the pressure panel prior to the flight. In response to this, the captain asked where the equipment cooling circuit breakers were and the ground engineer replied that they were behind the captain's seat. So he's just going to flip the breaker on the equipment cool. He's preoccupied with this other issue that he thinks is happening. The ground engineer is telling him, no, that, that seems okay. You don't have to worry about that. You know, what about this other problem? And the captain's just kind of ignoring him and like really fixated on this other realistically non-issue. Yeah, so the engineer's worried about the altitude warning going off, right? Right. See, okay, you picked up on it already, but the captain didn't. That warning that went off that the captain assumed was the takeoff configuration warning was actually the altitude warning. Well, you said that. I, I, I right. put it in my mind. <laughs> I said it, and I kind of tried to gloss over it quickly. But yeah, you picked up on it. They make the same sound. Oh. Like they have the same alarm. Wait, so he thought it was the takeoff configuration war, but it was the altitude. Oh, right. They make the same sound. It's the same alarm, but the altitude warning, that's something you, they would probably almost never hear. They wouldn't think that that's what it was. So they assume it's the other warning, which they might hear every now and then. Well, maybe not. (laughs) That sounds a little alarmist, which they might conceivably at some point in their career here. So he's, you know, he's a little distracted. He thinks the problem's one thing, but it's really not. And the engineer's kind of trying to work through this and, you know, get to the actual problem. But the captain's kind of dismissing him. It's like when you call tech support and you're like, no, no, that's not the problem. I think I know what it is. And you've got them on the phone for some reason. Yeah, yeah. like I'm going to flip the brick. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go do this other thing. Trust me, I worked tech support for several years. I know how frustrating it can be <laughs> on both sides of that phone call. So while the captain is talking to the engineer on the ground, the passenger oxygen masks deployed in the cabin as they're designed to do when the cabin altitude exceeds 14,000 feet. It was determined that the masks deployed at 614 at an altitude of about 18,000 feet. When you say cabin altitude, that's like the pressure? Exactly. Okay. And the pressurization exceeds. The pressurization. That. I'm thinking altitude like how high up in the air, but that's a pressure. Yeah, it's the pressure, like the equivalent pressure. Of 14,000 feet. Gotcha. Right. Exactly. So an interesting note that I learned when we were looking into this is that, I don't know about now, but at the time of this incident... There was no dedicated alert, light, or alarm that lets the pilots know that the passenger oxygen masks have deployed. Huh. What goes off is the master caution alarm, which we've talked about many times. It's just like a general something's wrong (laughs) alarm. And, you know, the crew saw this, but they thought the master caution was related to these other issues that they're investigating. They didn't realize that passenger oxygen masks had gone down. In the cockpit, their masks do not deploy automatically. Oh. They have to manually put their masks on and they're attached to oxygen bottles sometimes. So it's a manual process for them. So since, you know, no masks drop in the cockpit and only the master caution alarm goes off, they don't realize that the masks are down in the cabin for the passengers. Oh, I think I know what's going to happen. You probably you, you probably have a good idea of where uh, this is going already uh, based just on previous episodes that we've talked about. Uh-huh. 
Maybe also, well, do I want to spoil it? I'll, I'll say it right now. Maybe also what you're thinking of might be why the captain's distracted and not listening to the engineer mm-hmm. and why he's not you know, doing things correctly. Mm-hmm. If our listeners haven't figured it out, I'm not going to say exactly what it is yet. We'll get to that in just a bit. So radio communication between the captain and the ground engineer ended at 620 as flight 522 was passing through 28,900 feet. Like I said in the intro, that was the last thing they talked about. It's where the circuit breakers, the captain gets up to get to them and they never hear anything from this plane again. You say they never hear anything from it again, as in like the communication was shut off or they just don't communicate anymore? Well, on the ground, they wouldn't know the difference, but they received no communications. Okay. So shortly after this happens, the operator dispatcher called the flight crew again, but there was no response. Uh, And a few minutes later, the flight leveled off at 34,000 feet. Remember, their flight level was 340. At 629, the dispatcher called the Nicosia Air Control Center and asked the air traffic controller to contact Flight 522. Nicosia attempted to contact the flight several times with no response and then asked another flight to attempt to contact with no success either. Remember, we've talked about this before. Planes can broadcast on frequency if they're close to each other and they can communicate. At 636, Nicosia ACC contacted Athenai ACC. I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. I believe like when they say Athenai, it's like the Athens area. Okay. So they contact Athenai. God, I really hope I'm saying that right because that word comes up a lot in this... (laughs) And they contact him and tell him that Flight 522 was at the entry point for the Athenai airspace and said the flight was not answering. And if it did, to let them know. The flight entered the Athenai airspace without making contact and continued toward Athens according to its flight plan route. At 639, Nicosia attempted to contact the flight on the emergency frequency of 121.5, but there was no response there either. Nicosia then called Athenai, asking them if they made contact, which they replied with, not yet. So, you know, everyone on the ground, all the different towers are trying to coordinate. Everyone's trying to get in contact with the flight and they're just getting no response, not even on the emergency frequency. Yeah. So things are bad. Something's wrong. And when you're on the ground, you know, at this point, you know, August 2005, it's, you know, less than four years after September 11th. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sure they're thinking, you know, has this plane been hijacked? Is there a terrorist thing going on? Do we have to worry? That's probably, you know, why they scramble the F-16s once ready to shoot it down. It's like, you know, what is this going to do? Is this, did someone hijack the plane? Are they going to crash into the city, into like some of the monuments? Yeah. Athens is such a historic city. You know, these are all the things that people are starting to wonder about on the ground. So at uh, 712, I called Flight 522 to give them a descent clearance with no response, you know, because obviously they're approaching Athens. This is where they're intending to go. You know, they're trying to tell them, yeah, you can send a land if you want to, but of course, no response. Athenai ACC then called Athenai Approach Control and informed them that they had not made any contact with Flight 522 and there were several more attempts to establish contact. At 716, the Athenai ACC supervisor was informed about the communication failure of Flight 522 and the supervisor notified Athenai Approach, Athens Tower, and the Hellenic Air Force. At 721, Flight 522 passed the KEA VOR, you know, the um, beacon, and began what appeared to be a standard instrument approach procedure for landing at the international airport there in Athens, except it was performing this at flight level 340. So it's going through the procedure to land, Uh but it's not descending. It's going through the procedure at 34,000 feet. So is it on autopilot thing? Right. Exactly. So the autopilot knows that it's over the airport and, you know, and it lines up for the runway like it's going to land, but it's 34,000 feet in the air. It's not at the correct altitude. So it lines up. It's, does it like drop the wheels and stuff? No, no, no. It just, you know, it doesn't do any of the preparation. It's just the direction it's flying. Okay. So like I said, at 729, the flight flew over the airport at 34,000 feet 
And then it followed the missed approach procedure for the runway by turning right to the VOR. Then eight minutes later, it reaches that KEA VOR and then enters the published holding pattern. So the plane knows, you know, that it didn't land. Then it goes through the missed approach procedure, Uh goes out to the VOR. And then I guess, you know, at this point, the autopilot doesn't know what to do. So it enters the holding pattern that, you know, it's programmed. It knows what the holding pattern is. So it just doesn't know what to do. Spoiler, it's not being told anything by the pilots. So it just enters the holding pattern. So it's just the computer going, I don't know. I'm just going to circle around. I guess we're holding. That's what we'll do. At 7.53, Athena IACC declared an alert phase to the Joint Rescue Coordination Center. And at 8.23, during its sixth holding pattern, Flight 522 was intercepted by two F-16s from the Hellenic Air Force. During the interception, the F-16s attempted to make contact with signals and radio calls, but were not successful. One of the F-16s then maneuvered around the aircraft to look for any reasons why there was no communication and couldn't see any external structural damage or signs of fire. Hmm. At 8.32, the F-16s reported that the captain's seat was vacant and the first officer's seat was occupied by someone who was slumped over the controls. There were two passengers on the left side who sat motionless in their seats with oxygen masks on their faces, and they could see additional oxygen masks hanging from the overhead units. The Athena ACC then declared a distress phase to the Joint Rescue Coordination Center, and at 8.48, two chimes were heard on the cockpit voice recorder, followed by two more chimes 20 seconds later. Then there was a sound similar to the cockpit door opening, followed by what sounded like movement in the cockpit, seat adjustment, oxygen mask removal from the stowage box, and oxygen flow. They're hearing this on... This is on the cockpit voice recorder. So after the fact, when they get the cockpit voice recorder, they can hear these things. At the same time, you know, this is going on. One of the F-16 pilots observed a person wearing a light blue shirt and a dark vest enter the cockpit and sit in the captain's seat. He put on a set of headphones and appeared to place his hands on the panel in front of him. Then at 8.49, the left engine flamed out and the F-16 observed what looked like fuel coming out of the left engine. The aircraft turned steeply to the left and headed in a northerly direction. The person in the captain's seat did not respond to the attempts of the F-16 to get his attention but appeared to be bending forward every now and then. What? Flight 522 then began a descent on a northwesterly heading. That F-16 came in close to the aircraft again and saw the upper body of the person in the first officer's seat lean backwards as if he was sitting up. It became evident that this person was not wearing an oxygen mask and remained motionless. The person in the blue shirt? This is the person in the first officer's seat. So not the person in the blue shirt. The person in the blue shirt is in the captain's seat. Okay. At 8.54, the following distress was recorded on the cockpit voice recorder. Mayday, 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 Helios Airway Flight 522 Athens. And then a few seconds later, another mayday, mayday was recorded with a very weak voice. When the aircraft reached about 7,000 feet, the person in the captain's seat appeared to acknowledge the F-16s for the first time with a hand motion. Okay. The F-16 pilot responded with a hand signal for the person to follow him down towards the airport. But the person in the captain's seat pointed downwards, but did not follow the F-16. At 8.59, the aircraft turned to a southwesterly direction and continued to descend. A few seconds later, the right engine flamed out at an altitude of 7,084 feet. The aircraft continued to descend rapidly and collided with rolling hilly terrain in the vicinity of Gramatico Village, about 33 kilometers northwest of Athens International Airport at 9.03. Everyone on board was killed and the aircraft was destroyed. That's wild. It's really, really weird. And it's eerie. It's almost like something you would see in a movie or a TV show where it's like it has like that air of mystery to it. Like what's yeah. happening? All these unknowns or someone in the cockpit. Yeah, it's like a ghost story or something, you know? Yeah. But not. Right. And, you know, like I said, the cockpit voice recorder picked up someone saying Mayday, but they never actually broadcast it. So nobody heard it. It didn't go out over the radio. Was it just a random dude like 
a random passenger who thought he knew how to fly a plane? Listen, if I'm in that situation, <laughs> even if I don't think I know how to fly a plane, I'm going to try. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I agree. But we're going to get to that. Okay. We're going to peel it back and we'll, we'll let you know here in a bit. Peel back this blue shirt. <laughs> yeah. So the investigation was carried out by the Hellenic Air Accident Investigation and Aviation Safety Board. They found that right before this flight, the aircraft underwent some unscheduled maintenance. The night before this accident, the aircraft flew from London to Larnaca and landed at 1.25 a.m. During this flight, the cabin crew noticed a problem with the right aft service door and made a log entry that said, seal around door freezes and hard banks are heard during the flight. Immediately after the aircraft landed, that same ground engineer that the crew was talking to, you know, when they were flying about the what they thought was the takeoff configuration warning, when they called tech support, that guy was the one who performed a visual inspection of the door and carried out a cabin pressurization leak check. Wait, who's... So the flight lands when it comes back from London, London to Larnaca, it lands. The crew of that flight says, hey, the aft service entry door... There's some problem with it. The seal's freezing. So maintenance dispatches someone to look at it. An engineer goes. He performs an inspection. He performs a pressurization leak check. He finds no leaks or abnormal noises, and he says it's fine. Later, when 522 calls tech support, they're talking to this same guy. Oh. So the same guy who looked at the door before is the same one who answers the help request from 522 later in the day, which is maybe why, if you remember earlier, I said he tells them to check the pressurization panel. Because he's already yeah. kind of knows, like, he said everything was fine with the plane, but he knows that there was something that had been reported about it. Yeah. So the board reviewed the ground engineer's actions, and they had a few issues about how the procedure was carried out. With respect to the cabin pressure leak test, the ground engineer simply recorded pressure run carried out to max diff without making reference to the procedure or task number followed. According to the relevant airplane maintenance manual task, this test involved increasing the pressure in the aircraft until the differential pressure indicated shows a differential pressure of 4.0 PSI. At that time, the outflow valve was to be fully closed, and with the help of a stopwatch, the decrease in cabin pressure from 4.0 to 2.5 was to be plotted, and then using a factor curve, it was to be determined whether the leakage rate was acceptable. So basically, the way that they test it is, they pressurize the cabin up to a, like a certain differential from the outside, and then once it hits that point, they time it to see how slowly the air leaks out of the plane. Because, you know, the plane's not airtight. And then, you know, if it leaks out within a certain amount of time, it's okay. If it leaks out too fast, you have a problem. Yeah. It's natural for it to leak out a little bit. Right. And in fact, when a plane is flying, even if the pressurization system is working 100% normally, it's designed for air to leak out normally out of the back of the plane. So that way air circulates and you just don't have the same stagnant air in the huh. cabin the whole flight. So the engines force bleed air into the cabin to create pressurization. And then there's pressure release valves at the rear of the plane to let air out. That way new air is constantly circulating in and you're not just breathing the same air over and over. Which is why they plot it to see how fast it goes from 4.0 to 2.5 PSI difference because it's supposed to leak some out anyway. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. The procedure notes that the indication on the differential indicator must not be more than 4.0 PSI during a normal test. But the ground engineer stated that the cabin differential pressure during the test reached 8.25 PSI. I guess all we're summarizing here at this point is in his notes, he said, yeah, I did the test. But he didn't say how he did the test. And then when he's asked about it, he said the pressure went up to 8.25 when the test procedure clearly says it should not go above 4.0. So he did the test and it failed. And he Well, he did the test, didn't say how he did it, and then did it wrong. Okay. The fact that he let it go up to 8.25 means he pressurized it too much. 
there's no plot curve for going from 8.25 to 2.5. The plot curve they have is from 4.0 to 2.5. If you get it up to 8.25, then he can't run the test unless he can do all the math to figure out how quickly it's escaping to convert, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the chart they have is for 4.0, but he let it go up to 8.25. Then on top of that, so I mean, all of that's already kind of like, what? That doesn't make any sense. On top of all of that, the board also wonders how was he able to raise the pressure differential to that level? Because he said he only used the APU because he didn't want to turn the engines on. But if he only used the APU by itself, the APU is insufficient to raise it to that value within the time frame he said. Okay, so he, yeah, he just messed it up entirely. He either messed it up or is lying about what he did. Oh. Like either he's lying about how he did it or he's lying about the time frame or maybe he's mistaken. I don't know, but this, the board's just saying... You know, what the mechanic's telling us doesn't make any sense. This isn't right at all. Yeah. On top of all of that, I I feel like I already said that, the board also noted the ground engineer did not have proper equipment with him to perform the test. What? Yeah, nor did he remain on board or return to the aircraft when the flight crew arrived to brief them on the work he performed. The board is also unsatisfied with the condition that the aircraft was left in when the maintenance was completed. What I'm about to say next, this is the big, really the big red flag that probably led to this incident. The board believes that the digital cabin pressure control system was in manual mode during the flight based on the recorded cabin altitude parameters matching closely to the actual altitude of the aircraft. Cabin pressurization when you're on a plane normally happens automatically. Yeah. I I only just found out it was a manual thing like a couple episodes ago. That it could be manual. It could be manual. There's a knob. There's a knob, right. And this particular plane, uh, I believe they call it the P5 panel is where that knob is located. And it's always, it should always be set to auto. It's almost always set to auto. However, when they run this test to test the pressurization, the engineers need to switch it to manual. Oh. So they switch it to manual, did their test, and most likely left it manual. On accident. Right. And what I just read there, the board said the pressure on the plane matched pretty close to the actual altitude of the aircraft at the time. Oh, it did. Yeah, it yeah. probably never actually pressurized. <gasps> yeah, so we're, we're, I'll get into, I'm going to dig a little more into that in just a second. Before I get to that, I just want to say, that sounded like an ad segue, it's not. Uh, the board <laughs> has no reason to believe that the flight crew would deliberately set the pressurization controller to manual mode. In order to have done so, they would have had to write up in the logbook that there was a problem with the automatic or altitude modes. Furthermore, there was no evidence recorded of either pilot manually controlling their pressurization during the climb. So then, I mean, I guess the big question is, why did the engineer leave it as manual? Was it a mistake or was there no proper procedure for that? So the procedure Mm -hmm. that the ground engineer was following required setting the selector to manual mode. And the final task in the procedure simply says, put the airplane back to its initial condition. There's no line that says, put the pressurization back to auto. It just says back to its... Back to its initial condition. Uh, okay. And, you know, when, if you might be doing a bunch of different things, you might not remember every single switch you flipped. So, you know, the investigation board can't say that the ground engineer omitted a step in the procedure because there was no step that said put the pressurization back to auto. But the board does believe that it would have been prudent for the ground engineer to verify the return of the pressurization mode selector back to the auto position. So... There was no checklist item that said, put it back to auto, but he should have put it back to auto. Yeah, I mean, that seems like number one on the things that you want to return to normal. Right. The thing you're testing, put it back, make make sure it's on (laughs) when you're done. Yeah. So he didn't test it right, and he didn't have the equipment to test it, and then he didn't turn it back to auto. Correct. That That is a very quick summary of what happened. But yes, that is. I would say that's accurate. 
I hate to break it to you, but if you're online shopping without Honey, you're straight up doing it wrong, like disturbingly wrong, but don't worry, we can fix this. Honey is the free online shopping tool that scours the internet in search of promo codes and applies the best one it can find to your cart. All you have to do is install it into your browser and you're ready to save because Honey is that easy to use. Seriously, all you have to do is fill up your cart at one of over 30,000 stores online. And when you go to checkout, the Honey button drops down. All you have to do is click apply coupons. Wait a few seconds. Honey searches all the coupons they can find for that site. If Honey finds a working code, you'll watch the prices drop. Uh, I mean, I forget it's there all the time. I do online shopping, of course, like everyone else. And, uh, you know, I was buying some jeans recently and didn't even think about it. Get to the checkout portion, Honey drops down. And it's like, it's easy to save money. You don't even have to think about it ahead of time. As you're checking out, bam, it's like money right back in your pocket. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free, installs in a few seconds. Uh, by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Uh, never recommend something I don't use. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. There are a lot of things I'd rather do than furniture shop. Nap, watch TV, pull my teeth out with pliers. Yeah, you know, buying new furniture isn't exactly my idea of a fun Saturday, but Burrow has built the furniture experience of the future. They've got innovative design, premium materials, and a shopping experience that's actually pleasant. Burrow lets you customize your furniture through their clean, easy-to-use website. They make modular furniture that's easy to put together, uh, and it's easy to take apart, so moving is not a game of Tetris. Uh, they've even got pet-friendly rugs. All their orders have free shipping, so you never get slapped with a $100 delivery fee at checkout. Uh, and if you need someone to talk to, they have world-class service and support to help you decide. I love their couches. They're actually, like they say, super easy to put together. Uh, they've got tons of great features. Uh, I've used one in the past that has a USB charger built into it. So if you're, you know, sitting on your couch, watching TV, using your phone, your phone starts dying, you don't have to get up, go find your charger. It's already there. It's built into the couch. You can just pull it out from uh, right there next to the cushion and just start charging your phone. Thanks to the team at Burrow for supporting this show. Listeners can get $75 off their first order at burrow.com slash blackboxdown. That's Burrow, which is B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash blackboxdown for $75 off. Burrow.com slash blackboxdown. Who doesn't love spooky season? But what's harder to love is how busy it gets. Well, HelloFresh has recipes that save you time you'd otherwise spend meal prepping, grocery shopping, and chopping. So you can focus on quality time with friends and family or even just taking some time for yourself. HelloFresh's ingredients travel from farm to your door within a week so you can get the convenience without losing the quality. Uh, right now, they've got cozy season recipes like meatloaf a la mom or one pot broccoli mac and cheese to make weeknight meals easier. HelloFresh isn't just for meals. The marketplace features all kinds of seasonal snacks like pumpkin cinnamon rolls. Uh, here recently, I think it was last week, I made some amazing sweet potato fajitas uh, and also had some great black bean soup. I mean, it's really, really good stuff. And it's so, like I say all the time, it's so easy to make. It's a fun project. And when you're done, you get to eat it. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. Use code BlackBoxDown14. Get up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's up to 14 free meals, including free shipping at HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. Use code BlackBoxDown14. So I guess the next question you might be wondering is, well, if the engineer didn't set it back to auto, how come the pilots didn't notice that it was in manual and mm -hmm. not in auto? Right? Because, I mean, there's pre-flight checklists. Yeah. I mean, that is a good assumption because at that point now, it's on the pilots to catch that error and fix it during their pre-flight preparations. When the pressurization switch is set to manual, a green light appears that would not be on if it's set to auto. So, I mean, on top of the, the switch being, it's actually a little knob. On top of the, you know, that being set to manual instead of auto, there's like a little green light that pops on. The board believes that the lights would have been set to a bright setting, so the pilot should have been able to clearly see it. From a human performance standpoint, an individual may not notice the presence of a cue when he or she does not expect that cue 
because of a human nature vulnerability to look without seeing when performing lengthy habitual activities. Uh A typical pre-flight procedure may contain between 40 and 80 actions to be performed by the first officer and often under pressure of the impending departure in the presence of the captain who's waiting to call for the ensuing checklists. This procedure is performed from memory aided by the fact that the actions are organized along the topographical location of the panels in the cockpit. Memorization is beneficial for long list of actions, but has a disadvantage that actions are performed automatically without conscious effort and attention. This can and has in the past led to inadvertent omissions and other types of mistakes. There's not like a noise? It's, it's just a light. There, I mean, there is a noise. Remember, once they get to altitude and it's wrong, there's an alarm that goes off, but the crew misconstrued yeah. it as being the takeoff configuration warning. Because it's the same alarm noise. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I've also saw some speculation. I think there was also some speculation that the way that the plane was positioned, you know, the way that the sun was hitting it, it was kind of bright in the morning, that maybe it would have the sunlight would have drowned out the green light and they wouldn't have noticed it. It's like mm-hmm. all this other speculation as well, on top of the fact that, you know, when they're going through this by memory, it may not stand out. Okay. The board is sensitive to the fact that automatic execution of actions was very much affected by assuming that all switches and indicators were in the usual settings. The board believed that a superfluous green indication on the pressurization panel could be easily overlooked when perception was biased by the exception that it should not be present. So they're just kind of saying it's easy to overlook. Uh Also, the pressurization item on the checklist is paired with the air conditioning item as both systems use engine bleed air as the energy source and the item has three steps to it. The third step is to check that the pressurization is set. Many pilots informally reported that really only checked the landing and cruise altitude had been correctly set in the corresponding indications during this step. So pilots, you know, informally off the record will say, yeah, normally we just check that the altitude is set correctly. They don't actually check to make sure it's on auto. Mm -hmm. Just because it's normally always on auto. Yeah, that makes sense. On top of this, it was discovered that the first officer for this flight had several comments on his training record that observed that he had difficulty following standard operating procedure and having the correct usage of checklists. He had a tendency to make mistakes and omit items and tended to overreact and lose confidence in non-normal situations. That's something you want to hear. Mm -mm. When the aircraft reached an altitude of about 12,000 feet, the cabin altitude warning horn sounded. However, like I said, the two pilots confused this for the takeoff configuration warning as both failures used the same warning horn. The board notes that in the course of a pilot's career, the pilot is generally likely to only hear the warning horn when it's associated with the takeoff and takeoff configuration problems. This occurs, you know, when the crew mistakenly attempts to take off without having properly configured the aircraft for takeoff, or when the captain momentarily advances the throttles during the pre-flight check, or immediately after takeoff as a precaution to verify the warning horn is operating. When the takeoff configuration warning horn goes off, the takeoff should be immediately aborted. However, when this warning horn sounded, they were already at 12,000 feet, mm-hmm. so, you know, it should not have been for takeoff configuration. Yeah. At what altitude do you start getting altitude sickness? I don't know that for certain, but it's going to be, I think, around that altitude, 12,000, 14,000 feet, somewhere around there. You're going to start to feel a little wrong. Maybe get a headache. Your jaw or your ear might start hurting. Like, it's just, you're going to know something is wrong, but maybe you don't know exactly what. And it might be difficult to feel or to figure out what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. It's not something you're used to feeling, right? So you, you think maybe, maybe you think you're getting sick. I don't know. Seems like... The altitude warning should go up before you start feeling the effects of it. Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, it's probably recoverable. You know, when this uh-huh. goes off, you know, they know, oh, we have to descend. Like, maybe you'll start to feel the initial symptoms. It's nothing bad, but okay. it's the initial symptoms of it. So I was curious about this, and I decided to look it up. 
Typically on a 737, the cabin pressure does not climb above approximately 8,000 feet in normal operation. Okay. So just to give you a frame of reference for if you're on a 737, the highest altitude you've ever felt in one of those has probably been 8,000 feet. So at this point, you know, the alarm goes off at 12,000 feet. Something's definitely wrong. Yeah, because that's a third of more than what it normally is. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say like it's 50% higher is the way I would yeah, think about that's, it. Yeah, that's a better way to phrase it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So going back to, you know, what the board's saying about all this, the board also considered the role of stress that probably further contributed to the possible confusion of the two meanings of the warning horn. In general, stress such as that caused by the onset of a loud distracting alarm in the cockpit combined with the element of surprise, is known to lead to automatic reactions. Automatic reactions, in turn, are typically those that result from experience and frequency of encounter and are therefore not always appropriate. So, you know, in this case, the alarms are going off, things are wrong, they're stressed out, and they revert to a problem that they think it might be based on past experience, even though this is a new problem they've never experienced before. Mm -hmm. The board considered that the flight crew may have automatically reverted to a reaction based on memory before consciously processing the source and significance of the stress factor. This would also explain why the flight crew failed to realize the improbability of their interpretation of the horn as a takeoff configuration horn and why they failed to move on to gathering information for a new correct diagnosis of the problem on hand. Had the flight crew realized the significance of the warning horn, they would have donned their oxygen masks. Yeah. And of course, they're getting less oxygen. Their mental state might be degraded because of it. It's, it's hard to say. It was determined that the pressurization became insufficient for the flight crew to maintain their consciousness as the flight climbed to flight level 340. The last communication happened when the aircraft was at about 28,900 feet. And at this altitude, you only have 60 to 90 seconds of useful consciousness. Whoa. Yeah, it's real fast. You'd think like, oh, I can hold my breath, you know, or I can try to, if, if you knew, right, you could try to extend it, but that, it's really, that's not effective. The oxygen's leaving you. Mm-hmm. At 22,000 feet, you have between five and 10 minutes, and the amount of time of useful consciousness drastically decreases as you climb. We've talked about this next point in particular. Uh, the passenger oxygen system is only designed to last 12 minutes. Oh, right. That's Remember, right. They, have, they have oxygen generators that, you know, go off and that generate oxygen. So they only go for 12 minutes, which, you know, they're only supposed to last for that long because the crew is supposed to descend to 10,000 feet. Mm-hmm. That's all they really normally need. So from a passenger perspective, you know, the oxygen masks deploy, they put them on, but the plane just keeps climbing. And in the cabin, the passengers don't know that the pilots are unaware of what the problem is. So oh eventually, you know, the oxygen masks in the cabin run out of oxygen. oxygen and, the, right, and the passengers run out of oxygen too, which is why none of them were moving when the F-16s looked in. They just kind of pass out, right? Right, exactly. Just kind of lose consciousness. And the pilots weren't aware, so they passed out, essentially. Exactly. And like I said, you know, the F-16 didn't see anyone in the captain's seat. You know, it's because the captain most likely got out of his seat to check the circuit breakers that were behind him. And he probably collapsed on the floor behind his seat. And passed out. Mm-hmm. So the board also found that three of the four portable oxygen bottles were found with their valves open. And they believe that someone on board of the aircraft used them. And like I said, the F-16 pilot saw someone enter the cockpit without an oxygen mask. But the board believes that the F-16 pilot may not have been able to observe the mask because the mask is clear in color. The person who he saw enter was later identified as the only male flight attendant on this flight. That was the blue shirt? Yeah, the vest and the shirt. It was the uniform of the flight attendants. Oh. It was the flight attendant who managed to get into the cockpit. The left engine flamed out due to fuel starvation, and then the aircraft left the holding pattern by starting a left descending. Remember, I said it turned left. It's because 
the left engine ran out of fuel. Mm -hmm. That's why it starts turning left, because the right engine still had some fuel. And then it followed an uneven flight path of fluctuating speeds and altitudes. The board considers this as evidence that the cabin attendant was attempting to control the aircraft. He attempted to make a mayday call, but it was not transmitted over the radio. It was only picked up by the CVR microphone. Because he didn't know what he was doing. He was just trying to... I have a little twist for you there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop on you in a second. Uh -oh. When the flight attendant finally noticed the F-16, there was no evidence he attempted to follow the F-16. So, like you said, you would think that, you know, the flight attendant doesn't know how to fly the plane. That's why, you know, he, he can't transmit his mayday or anything. This particular flight attendant actually had a commercial pilot's license from the United what? Kingdom. What? Yeah, it was issued in October of 2003. So, he was a licensed pilot. He, you know, he wasn't trained on a 737 specifically, but, you know, a commercial pilot's license is pretty serious. He's got some good experience flying. Why is he a flight attendant? He wanted to become a pilot. So he was working his way up. There oh. were, yeah, at the time, Helios wasn't hiring pilots. So he, his girlfriend was a flight attendant as well. So he's like, oh, well, you know, I'll be a flight attendant also. You know, I, I'll get some. In fact, that's why he was on this flight. He wasn't scheduled to be on this flight. He was off that day. But a friend of his had uh, called him to see if he could cover. And he, he knew his girlfriend was on this flight. He's <gasps> like, yeah, I'll cover the flight for you. So he was on the flight with his girlfriend? Yeah. And it's, it's not a flight he was scheduled to be on. Oh, no. This guy was actually, how can I put this? This particular flight attendant had a, an interesting background. He was also, on top of you know being a commercial pilot, he was also a scuba diver. So he was familiar with oxygen tanks. Oh. And on top of that, he was a former member of the special forces in the military what? there in Greece. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, so, it's so tragic because it sounds like the perfect hero story. It's like right. he's there with his girlfriend and he has all this unique training that makes him perfectly suited for this situation. But it he just goes doesn't work into, out. to try and do it. But he, he, oh, my God, that's so tragic. By the time he gets there, you know, one of the engines has run out of fuel. The other one's just about to run out. He's probably also suffering from oxygen deprivation uh -huh. or hypoxia. You know, he's probably not thinking clearly. So I, I, that's personally, that's my speculation. He was probably suffering from hypoxia, which is why he didn't hit the transmit on the radio. Yeah. Oh, and if I recall properly, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think the radio was still set to the frequencies for their departure airport, Larnaca. The frequency hadn't changed to the new frequencies where they were. Oh. And then on top of all of that, you know, all the stress, hypoxia, you know, fuel running out, it was probably impossible to regain control of the 737 at this point. Man, that, it's, that sucks. Yeah, it's awful. It's like, he's so close. I know. You know like, there's no way he could have known. You know, he probably, from where he was, I believe at the time that this incident started when the oxygen mask deployed, I believe he was at the very back of the plane as well. There's no way he could have known that the pilots were incapacitated. I'm sure he probably tried to call them on the intercom, but got no response. And then, you know, you're, you wait, you wait, and it's like, oh, nothing's happening. It's like, eventually you've got to do something. Yeah. I wonder if, too, like, people were, like, knocking, trying to get a hold of the pilots, and they're, like, passed out or what? Well, the procedure that the flight attendants are trained to follow in this situation uh -huh. is they're supposed to strap in and get into their seats, put their oxygen masks on, and wait for instruction. Do they have a longer oxygen tank? They have the same kind. However, there are portable oxygen tanks stored on the plane that they can use if they need to. And that's what I mentioned earlier, that they yeah. found three of the four had valves open. Most likely, this male flight attendant accessed those oxygen tanks and started using them. And those tanks have one hour of capacity in them. So that would have been enough time, but he might have... We don't know. Yeah. He, yeah, he might have passed out initially and then regained consciousness. 
like we, we there's just no knowing what happened on that plane. Yeah. Just because there's, you know, there's no way to record what was happening in the cabin. Well, also, it might have been a thing by the time he realized he needed to use them, he was already so hypoxic that he couldn't even use that thing correctly or, you know. Right. There's no way to know. And everything is definitely stacked against him. Yeah. Like you think like, oh, this guy's perfectly suited for this. But it's like, there are so many things to overcome. That, it's, I know. And that's why it makes it so tragic. But because it's like yeah. such a, there's like an alternate version of this event that like is amazing. That it works. Yeah. yeah. It's like so close, but man, it's, yeah, it's terrible. So they're going to blame it on the, the guy who checked it, right? The ground tech. That's a good segue to uh, the findings and causes. <laughs> I got the findings and the causes from the report right here. So first of all, findings. After the pressurization test, the pressurization mode selector was not selected to auto. Although not a formal omission, it would have been prudent to position the pressurization mode selector back to auto. So like we said, the checklist doesn't say put it back to auto, but it should have been put back to auto mm -hmm. after the test. During the pre-flight procedure, the before start, and the after takeoff checklist completion, the flight crew did not recognize and correct the incorrect position of the pressurization mode selector. So there are three different checklists where they missed it. Pre-flight, before start, and after takeoff. Mm. The green light indication that the pressurization mode selector was in manual position should have been perceived by the flight crew during pre-flight, takeoff, and climb. At an altitude of 12,040 feet and at a cabin pressure that corresponds to an altitude of 10,000 feet about five minutes after takeoff, the cabin altitude warning horn sounded. The incorrect interpretation of the reason for the warning horn indicated that the flight crew was not aware of the inadequate pressurization of the aircraft. Before hypoxia began to affect the flight crew's performance, inadequate CRM contributed to the failure to diagnose the pressurization problem. And we've talked about CRM before. Some people call it cockpit resource management. Some people call it crew resource management. It's just a very efficient way to identify and confront problems mm -hmm. and deal with them right away. We've talked about this in episodes in the past. Yeah. You should listen to those. CRM has really revolutionized airline safety and the way that it's really led to flying being so safe today. Anyway. The flight crew probably lost useful consciousness as a result of hypoxia sometime after their last radio communication on the company frequency at 6.20, approximately 13 minutes after takeoff. So they probably went unconscious almost you know, really quickly after takeoff. It could not be determined what actions were taken by the cabin crew members after deployment of the oxygen masks in the cabin, nor whether any of the cabin crew members attempted to contact the flight crew or enter the flight deck after passenger oxygen masks were deployed. That just goes to what I said earlier. There's no way to know what happened in the cabin where the passengers were. Yeah. The cabin crew member in the cockpit attempted to transmit a mayday message, which was recorded on the CVR. However, the mayday calls were not transmitted over the VHF radio because the microphone key, as shown in the flight data recorder, was not pressed. The performance of the cabin crew member was very likely impaired by the hypoxic and stressful conditions. Okay, so he didn't actually ever hit the transmit button. And I, even if he did... You know, the radio was probably set to the takeoff frequency. It might not have been picked up, but it might have as well. Three of the four portable oxygen cylinders on board the aircraft had most likely been used. The cabin altitude was calculated to have been about 24,000 feet, while the aircraft was at a cruise level of 34,000 feet. Now for the causes. If we have the direct causes, latent causes, and contributing factors. And this is, this is where they assign blame, like you were asking mm -hmm. earlier. Non-recognition that the cabin pressurization mode selector was in the manual position during performance of the pre-flight procedure, before start checklist, and after start checklist. Non-identification of the warnings and the reasons for the activation of the warnings and continuation of the climb. Incapacitation of the flight crew due to hypoxia resulting in continuation of the flight via the flight management computer and the autopilot, depletion of the fuel and engine flameout, and impact of the aircraft with the ground. 
and now latent causes, the operator's deficiencies in organization, quality management, and safety culture documented diachronically as findings in numerous audits. So this airline, uh, Helios, at the time, they had... I've read conflicting things. They either had three planes or four planes. Either way, it was a really small airline when this Mm -hmm. happened. They had had some ongoing maintenance issues. I think a lot of crew had, you know, would report issues in planes and they were kind of slow to fix it. And, you know, even this particular plane, the night before the accident, they reported that the door seemed to be wonky. It was freezing. The hinges were freezing, which it shouldn't be. And it was making banging noises. So just kind of a lax safety culture was going on at the time. Okay. The regulatory authorities' diachronic, inadequate execution of its oversight responsibilities to ensure the safety of operations of the airlines under its supervision and its inadequate response to findings of deficiencies documented in numerous audits, inadequate application of crew resource management principles by the flight crew, ineffectiveness and inadequacy of measures taken by the manufacturer in response to previous pressurization incidents in the particular type of aircraft with regard to modifications to the aircraft systems as well as to guidance to the crews. Omission of returning the pressurization mode selector to auto after unscheduled maintenance on the aircraft. Lack of specific procedures for cabin crew procedures to address the situation of loss of pressurization, passenger oxygen mass deployment, and continuation of the aircraft ascent. Ineffectiveness of international aviation authorities to enforce implementation of corrective action plans after relevant audits. So in my mind, all of these, it seems like they blame first and foremost the crew for not noticing this during their checklist and not noticing it when the alarm went off. They also blame maintenance, although they do acknowledge it doesn't specifically say return to auto when you're done. But still, they they say it would have been prudent to do so. And also, they honestly kind of lay some blame on the regulatory agencies here in this area, saying Mm -hmm. that they should have had better oversight of this airline. Since this airline had some safety issues, there should have been, you know, more enforcement of all of these regulations on them. 100% 100% get blaming the pilots for not noticing those and not reacting correctly. But also the engineer who did the test incorrectly and didn't put the thing that like, yeah, that is where I feel like a bunch of blame should lie. Did he, did, what happened to yeah. that guy? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. I guess that's going to be unsatisfying. There were, uh, I'm going to get to some of the legal repercussions at the very end. There were some lawsuits, of course, I'm as sure. a result of this, including some really frustrating things. But again, I don't want to. I don't want to mention that until I get down to there. So, of course, you know, there's recommendations. There's a few recommendations as a result of uh, of this incident. The Boeing company considered taking action to emphasize flight crew training and awareness in relation to the importance of verifying the bleed and pack system configuration after takeoff, and the understanding and recognition of the differences between cabin altitude and takeoff configuration warnings. So, mm-hmm. training and emphasis on these warnings. The Boeing company clarified the aircraft maintenance manual maintenance procedure for cabin pressure leakage test to explicitly specify the actions necessary to complete the maintenance test. Currently under the title of Section F, put the airplane back to its initial condition. There were three action items, but none of them referred for the pressure mode selector replaced in the position auto. Again, make the checklist say put it back in auto. Just like specific. Right. We talk about this all the time. Flying is so safe. Because of the checklist and the procedures. (laughs) They exist for a reason. Like, that's why we all trust getting into a a, a metal tube seven miles above the earth, you know, traveling at 500 miles an hour because of these checklists. It's so, it's so weird to say, but like these save lives. I love how much you love the checklist and the procedures for good reason. But I love how like 
it's, I don't know. I don't think we've mentioned this on this podcast yet, but I've actually started taking some pilot lessons. And my favorite thing in the world is the pre-flight checklist. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love it. I, I, I love going through everything. I, I, like I can I can really geek out about checklists. I think they're awesome. That's that's a spoiler. That little spoiler. Maybe we'll talk about it at some point. Man, I I did something real dumb. I I actually hurt myself doing a pre-flight checklist a couple of weeks ago <laughs> in a really dumb way. Maybe we'll talk about it. We we have some supplemental episodes coming up. Maybe we'll talk about it at some point there. Okay. But I'll just tease that for now. Okay, back to the recommendations here. The Boeing company consider enhancing the design of the pre-flight checklist to better distinguish between items referring to the air conditioning and the pressurization systems of the aircraft, and to include an explicit line item instructing flight crews to set the pressurization mode selector to auto. Again, really emphasize the checklist. The Boeing company reconsidered the design of the cabin pressure control system controls and indicators so as to better attract and retain the flight crew's attention when the pressurization mode selector position is in the manual position. So, you know, maybe redesign this, something that can catch your attention a little better than a small green light. Yeah. Green's not even a good color for a warning. Green looks like... <laughs> green's good? Green's all good here. <laughs> like, well, I think in this case, off is good. Sure. Any light is bad. But yeah, you're right. It's like, you see a green light, you're like, oh, that's probably okay, right? Like, if you're picking out colors for a warning, maybe not green. <laughs> <laughs> you should work for one of these agencies. I'm sure there's a reason. I'm sure it makes total sense. You've seen the pictures of cockpits. Yeah. There's a million switches and lights. I'm sure there's a reason it's a green light. Require all airlines to amend cabin crew procedures so that when the oxygen mass deploy in the cabin due to loss of cabin pressure or insufficient cabin pressure, and if the aircraft does not suspend climb or level off or start descent, the cabin chief or cabin crew member situated closest to the flight deck be required to immediately notify the flight crew of oxygen mass deployment and to confirm the flight crew have donned their oxygen masks. So this is actually a big deal, right? Whoever, you know, the lead flight attendant or the, the main person in the cabin crew if the masks come down and they notice the plane doesn't level off or go down, they need to immediately call the cockpit and tell them, hey, the masks have dropped back here. Put your masks on. So this is even conceivably even better than an alarm. It's someone's calling you and telling yeah. you directly what's happening. Require aircraft manufacturers to install in newly manufactured aircraft and on a retrofit basis in older aircraft, in addition to the existing cabin altitude warning horn, a visual and or oral alert warning when the cabin altitude exceeds 10,000 feet. So on top of the cabin crew telling you, in new aircraft and in some mm -hmm. retrofit cases, have a very explicit, unique warning for this alert. Good. So, But again, it's another <laughs> alert, another horn, another warning. I think that's, that's always the, the opposite side, the flip side, is you don't want to overload the crew with too many alerts or warnings yeah. or potential malfunctions. That being said, I think this is a good one. I think this is a good one to have. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate and you know, explain why maybe it didn't exist before. Require practical hypoxia training as a mandatory part of flight crew and cabin crew training. This training should include the use of recently developed hypoxia training tools that reduce the amount of oxygen a trainee receives while wearing a mask and performing tasks. So some very hands-on, first-hand experience training. Yeah, how did they test that? You can actually look up some YouTube videos uh, that show these tests. I'm sure if you look up like hypoxia training, you'll find them. Uh, they have chambers where they reduce the pressure in them. And, you know, they have oxygen masks in there. And they'll probably, they have the crew, you know, try to do tasks at normal pressure. They reduce the pressure, try to have the crew do those tasks again, and then have them put their oxygen masks on. So they realize, oh my God, I couldn't do anything. <laughs> it's really <laughs> scary to watch. It's unbelievable how quickly your brain just stops. It's like, I want to say almost, it's like, you're drunk or you're not in your right mind because you don't realize like how close you are to death. 
and you're just you're just happy with it. You're just fine. It's okay. That's really scary. It's really terrifying. Because it happens in the air and it happens really high up and really far down in the ocean and stuff, right? Like scuba diving. Yeah, if uh, if it gets messed up. So Families of the Dead, like I said, filed a lawsuit against Boeing on July 24th, 2007. Their lawyer said Boeing put the same alarm in place for two different types of dysfunction. One was a minor fault. The other, the loss of oxygen in the cockpit is extremely important. I would argue that takeoff configuration warning is also extremely important. We've covered an incident on this very podcast because of uh, takeoff configuration warning. So I I would argue that they're both Mm -hmm. (laughs) very important. I wouldn't say one's a minor fault. Anyway, he also said that similar problems have been encountered before on Boeings in Ireland and Norway. The family sued for 76 million euros in compensation from Boeing. and The case was settled out of court. Besides that particular lawsuit against Boeing, there were many, many lawsuits that went on for years after this. I think finally the last of them was finally resolved, I believe, in 2013. So eight years after the incident. Whoa. You know, it, it, it just really drug out. In the end, some people, you know, there were, like I said, there were lawsuits against tons of people. There were lawsuits against, you know, management executive officers at the airline, flight operations managers, chief pilots, engineers. Tons of people were charged with different things. In the end, you know, some of them won appeals and were let out. Some defendants lost their appeals and they were sentenced to jail. They were sentenced to 10 years of prison, but they were given the option to buy out their sentence. Yeah. It's like you could go to prison for 10 years or instead pay 79,000 euros. That's it? That's it. From what I understand, they all bought out their prison sentence. They all ended up paying 79,000 euros, uh, except for one of them who had intervention on his behalf by the Bulgarian government because he was a Bulgarian citizen. That was a whole, it was a whole other deal. The lawsuits are so complicated with this, with this incident. But I wanted to at least share that little tidbit that some of these defendants that were sentenced to jail ended up not going to jail and paying 79,000 euros to avoid uh, jail time. Yeah, which I thought was nuts, which is why I had, I I highlighted that to make sure we talked about it. But that's it. I mean, that's pretty much uh, Helios 522. This is a super interesting incident. Just there's so many wrinkles to it. And like you said, it's so it's like extra tragic. It's so close to being saved. I've read I've read conflicting reports. I didn't want to get into this in the actual episode. I've read some reports that the flight attendant, you know, like we talked about, got into the cockpit and was trying to fly the plane. I've read some other reports that he was also able to revive his another flight attendant, presumably his girlfriend, oh my and that she was in the cockpit as well with him. I don't know which is correct. It's such a movie setup. Yeah. Most of the reports indicate it was just him by himself. I have seen one or two that say she was in the cockpit as well. That's why I presented it as he was in there by himself and that not that she was in there. But that is a theory as well that, you know, he was able to resuscitate her and that she was in the cockpit trying to help as well. Terrible, terrible tragedy. But that being said, well, we're going to go on break for a little bit. We got uh, some supplemental episodes coming up and then we'll be back with regular episodes in a few weeks. This, uh, this little break gives us time to Figure out what episodes we're doing next, you know, recharge a little bit, begin the research process for the next 10 episodes. But like I said, we're not going to be gone for too long. We do have supplemental episodes in Mm -hmm. the meantime. Uh, Maybe uh, I'll talk about my pilot lessons and how I stupidly hurt myself during a (laughs) pre-flight checklist. Uh, Leave that little tease out there. I just looked up the engineer. Irwin, 51, was on trial for manslaughter for 121 people. Oh, so is Alan Irwin is the... Mm -hmm. um, I didn't realize that Alan Irwin was the specific engineer. So Alan Irwin, he was the defendant who was successful in his appeal that I mentioned. Okay. In 2013, he he had been charged and convicted uh, of manslaughter for this case. 
and he was sentenced, but he was left free on appeal. And then in 2013, his appeal was successful. Okay. So uh, he didn't actually go to serve any jail time because of this. So to answer your question, I, I knew the name. I didn't realize <laughs> Alan Irwin was the name of, uh, of, of the engineer. Of the engineer, yeah. So I, I remember that name from looking into the, the lawsuit side of things. Nice little stinger. Nice little, <laughs> nice little uh, ender. All right. Uh, we'll see you guys uh, soon in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>